Well, good evening, my dear brethren and sisters and my dear young people. Tonight, of course, we come to our final study around Hezekiah, the man who walked before God in truth and did that which was good in the sight of God. And just as the children of Israel kept the Passover feast with gladness, we have joined together during this week and rejoiced at the word of God under the leadership of Brother Carl and absorbed the example of a king who trusted in Yahweh. And tonight we look forward once again to the words of our brother Carl as he leads us to the theme, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. We'll begin our evening then with a hymn and a prayer, the hymn being number 234. As a basis for tonight's study, we'll call upon Brother Greg Horwood to come forward and to read for us Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. Isaiah chapters 38 and 39. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith Yahweh, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto Yahweh and said, Remember now, O Yahweh, I beseech thee, Oh, I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight and Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of Yahweh to Isaiah saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this shall be a sign unto thee from Yahweh, that Yahweh will do this thing that he hath spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees, which is gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees, by which degrees it was gone down. The writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I said, I shall not see Yahweh, even Yahweh, in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Mine age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness. From day even to night wilt thou make an end of me. I reckon till morning that, as a lion, so will he break all my bones. From day even to night wilt thou make an end of me. Like a crane or swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn as a dove. Mine eyes fail with looking upward 
O Yahweh, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I say? He hath both spoken unto me, and himself hath done it. I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So wilt thou recover me and make me to live. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee, they that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. The living, the living, he shall praise thee, as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. Yahweh was ready to save me. Therefore we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of Yahweh. For Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil and he shall recover. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of Yahweh? At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them, and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armour and all that was found in his treasures, there was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh of armies. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith Yahweh. And of thy sons that, that, that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of Yahweh which thou hast spoken. He said moreover, For there shall be peace and truth in my days. Thanks for that reading, Brother Greg. I now invite your closest attention, brethren and sisters and young people, to the words of our brother Carl as he speaks to the theme, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Brother Carl. Chairman, brethren and sisters, my dear young people, We left our last study upon a glorious and wonderful victory. I will defend this city, said Yahweh, to save it for mine own sake and 
for my servant David's sake. And because God's honor was at stake, and this man had blasphemed the Holy One of Israel, therefore God would respond and destroy the enemy forever. But you know, at the time of greatest triumph, at the moment of exaltation and ascendancy, when we were like them that dream, disaster struck again. In those days, in chapter 38, verse 1, was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith Yahweh, set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. In those days, there is a specific point made about the timing of the disease. At the time of the greatest triumph, in those days, the worst affliction that man could possibly imagine came upon him. He was sentenced to death. Thou shalt die. The promise of Genesis 2.17 was now to be accelerated and death faced the man in the jaws of victory. You know, Rabshakeh had said, you may live and not die. And God had said, you shall die and not live. The disease he contracted is described in chapter 38 and verse 21 as a boil. The Hebrew word means an inflamed ulcer. In Leviticus 13 and verse 20, it's used of leprosy. In Job chapter 2 and verse 7, it's used of the affliction of Job. It was an exceedingly evil disease. You can well imagine, can't you, the discomfort. This disease that first started as a rash upon the body. Then it broke into weeping sores and ulcers. There were only two issues dominating the man's mind, young people. There was the Assyrian outside the walls and there was his own nature breaking down and ulcerating before his eyes. And it's significant that through all the record there is no prayer recorded for his own benefit. There is no prayer recorded to heal himself. There is only prayer for his people. That's the caliber of the man he was. A man who well understood the need for the prayers to go to God for others and not for himself. In the mercy of God, God destroyed the Assyrian. And we can well imagine Hezekiah flushed with the great triumph of that glorious host was now expecting doubtless the healing of his own body. Surely that would come as a matter of course. If God could control the first, surely he can control the second. But it was not to be. In those days, at that time, was Hezekiah sick unto death. The nation is to be delivered, but you are to die. Can you imagine the perplexity, young people? Can you imagine the perplexity of the man? And it's even more perplexing because no sooner had Isaiah given the death sentence upon him 
that some five minutes later he was back again and Hezekiah was healed. What's the purpose of all that? Why consign a man to death and on the other hand give him eternal life in type? Why is it all happening? Wasn't the king a righteous man? Hadn't he reformed the nation? Hadn't he made intercession for the transgressors from the north? Hadn't he strengthened the people to put their trust in God? Weren't they dependent on that strength? And now he had to die. What is God telling us, brethren and sisters? What is God telling us that in the pinnacle of his righteousness and faith, thou shalt surely die? We saw yesterday that the victory against the Assyrian was a parable of salvation. For mine own sake, my own honour and mine own name, I will destroy the enemy. But what God is saying, young people, is, is that something else is required. Something more than the personal mediation of a righteous king. Something more than his personal example of faith. Something more is required. The way at the moment is inadequate. What else was required? I'd like you to come back to Isaiah 42 that we saw in our first study. It is in mine heart, he said, to make a covenant. And it was the prophet Isaiah that had gone further than that and said in verse 7 of Isaiah 42, in the context of the servant prophecy that we saw in our first study, that I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness. Here is the issue at stake, God's righteousness. And I will hold thine hand and will keep thee and will give thee for a covenant of the people for a light for the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I will give thee for a covenant. The man who desired to make a covenant was himself to be the covenant victim. I have called thee in righteousness. Something else was required. It was the death of a covenant victim. It was the smiting and healing of a righteous man himself. It was the willing submission of a man to the requirements of God, which meant that the sentence of death must be upheld. Sin has to be condemned in the arena of its activity within human nature itself. A perfect sacrifice is required. That's what God was aiming for, brethren and sisters. That a man may uphold his righteousness in death. And as a basis, God's forbearance could be exercised. You know, the law, through all its shallow institutions, could only very faintly point towards that glorious atoning work. But eventually, it all had to come down to a person. Now, I want you to think, brethren, sisters and young people, about the enormity of this drama. Because it was unique to this point of time. Certainly, there had been hints through the word, the serpent upon a pole the Passover lamb, 
the Psalms of David that spoke of a suffering servant, but it had never yet been outworked in a person. The closest the record had ever come to was the sacrifice of Isaac, but never had there been a righteous man who suffered and died for the salvation of others. You think of the enormity of this drama. God is now, in this time, in those days, about to outwork the greatest drama in the parable of salvation, the death and resurrection of a man, the suffering of a man for the salvation of his people. Now, how do we know that's right? We're going to show to you the keys that the prophecy of Isaiah is going to link together to give us the power of this drama. In Isaiah 22, which I'd like you to turn to, we read those words concerning the riotous city at the time the Assyrian advanced. As they raced upon the rooftops and held these shameless parties. The last day to live, let's make it enjoyable. And in Isaiah 22 and verse 14, as Isaiah wept openly, it was revealed in mine ears by Yahweh of armies. Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you until you die, said the Lord Yahweh of armies. That was a serious condition. Here is an unforgivable sin. It shall not be purged until you're dead. That's how God viewed the faithlessness of those people. But when we come to Isaiah 33, this is what we find. Now Isaiah 33 is a chapter against the Assyrian. It's a chapter which describes the way in which God would remove the spoiler in Isaiah 33 and verse 5, Yahweh is exalted. For he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness, and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times, and strength of salvation. The fear of Yahweh is his treasure. And those verses are describing the way in which in all this conflict, God would be exalted and his righteousness would be supreme in the matter of salvation. And so at the end of the chapter, in verse 24, when the enemy is destroyed and God is exalted, we read, and the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. What event caused the forgiveness of their sins? It was not the smashing of Assyria around about Jerusalem. There was something else. There was before the invasion a sin which could never be forgiven and after the invasion had been smashed the record says that people are healed and their sins are forgiven. Whence the change? Well, in Isaiah 38, this was God's response to the man Hezekiah. 
Isaiah 38 and verse 5, Thus saith Yahweh, the Elohim of David. That's an interesting expression. The divine name was always linked with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, a deity who had manifested himself in the mighty seed of those fathers, is now linking himself with the seed of David, kings. I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Now I want you to notice the language that God uses. Hezekiah was to be given 15 years. It was a new lease of life. In fact, we know from the king's record that he was healed on the third day. It's a symbol of the resurrection. And verse 6 says, immediately after the promise of this new life, and I will deliver thee and this city. Now what's the record saying? It's saying that through the resurrection of this man, the granting of life to this man, I will deliver thee and the city. The resurrection of this man was essential to the deliverance of himself and the people. They are inseparably linked. Now before this disease, God had said, I will save the city. But now the man had to die and had to raise again. And God says, together I will deliver both of you, thee and the city. Without that resurrection, in verse 5, there could be no deliverance of both parties in verse 6. Now can you see that link? Thee and this city. Not just you, Hezekiah. You and the city, they are linked together over the resurrection of that man. Now I'd like you to come to Romans 5. Here is the doctrinal import of that, which I believe is based upon the language of Hezekiah. Very interesting. Without the resurrection of Hezekiah, both himself and the city would not see deliverance. That's the message which God gave to Hezekiah. Now, Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. This is what Paul says, and notice the language that he uses. For when ye were without strength, where have you heard those words before? In Isaiah 37 and verse 3, Hezekiah had said to Eliakim, the children are come to the birth and there is no strength to bring forth when you were without strength. In due time, as the margin says, according to the time, in those days, at a specific point of time, the death of Hezekiah was appointed. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us. Hezekiah said in Isaiah 38 and verse 17, Thou hast in love delivered my soul from death. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then now, being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. In Isaiah chapter 37, verse 29, the wrath of the Assyrian was pressing against the people. For in verse 10, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And through the resurrection of that man and the granting of life to that man, both he and the city were delivered. It's a glorious doctrine that we are saved by his life. That When God raised our Lord from the dead, the resurrection of that person guaranteed for us the hope of eternal life. But that's the first point we wish to make. The second is found back in Isaiah. Let's come back to this. These are the doctrines of the atonement being outworked in the death and resurrection of this man. And Isaiah 38 and verse 16. <clears throat> Shall I say verse 15? In Hezekiah's song of deliverance, he stopped his song halfway through and he asked a question in verse 15, what shall I say? What shall I say about all of these events? What can I say? God hath both spoken unto me and himself hath done it. And that's the most unusual way to interrupt a psalm. What can I say? What shall I say? And everyone is now waiting for the answer. What shall he say? But he doesn't give us the answer there. He simply says that God has spoken to me and himself hath done it. And we're left hanging in the air. He's asked a question and he doesn't give us the answer. But you see, the answer was given. We made the point last night that Isaiah chapter 36 to 39 interrupts the prophecies of Isaiah. Have you ever wondered why these historical incidents should split Isaiah 35 right down the middle? Because Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 40 are the same thematic vision. Why didn't these historical events split other chapters? Why was it Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 40? Let's come back to Isaiah 34. I hope you can follow this with me because it's a glorious answer as to the reason why this man had to die. We read Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 35 in a future context, don't we? You see, we read Isaiah 34 and verse 2 that the indignation of Yahweh is upon all nations. It has a future application. In verse 8, it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. It has a future application. Isaiah 35, we know well. The wilderness left by the desolation of war is seen to blossom. There's singing and rejoicing as people await the advance of the glory of Yahweh and the excellency of Elohim. It's a future prophecy. It talks about the way in which the 
weak and the feeble are strengthened to receive God. It talks about a God who'll come and save them. It talks about people who are healed. It talks about a new way, the way of holiness, where no ravenous beast shall be there. It talks about the redeemed of Yahweh coming with singing. For sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And we grasp those words. It's the future. But the historical record deliberately interrupts the prophetic word because there was a sense in which all of those events found a substance in Hezekiah. On the overhead, which we have before us, we have Isaiah 35 in relation to Hezekiah's life. The wilderness which was to bloom did blossom. In Isaiah 37, verse 31, God says, The remnant who shall escape shall put their roots down and shall produce fruit in the desert. In verse 3 of Isaiah 39, Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. And there was a king there who did exactly that. Fear not, but be ye courageous. In verse 4, be strong and fear not with the very words that Hezekiah used and God himself used in Isaiah 37, verse 6. He will come to save you, said Isaiah 35. And God said in Isaiah 37, verse 35, I will save this city. Isaiah 35 spoke in verses 5 and 6 of the sick who were healed and Hezekiah was the epitome of that. And Isaiah 33 verse 24 the inhabitants shall no longer say I'm sick. There was a healing which they experienced. In verse 8 there was a new way of holiness revealed and we know from the historical record that it was a new way of holiness life through death. In Isaiah 35, verse 9, there shall be no lion there anymore. And the lion was a well-known symbol of the Assyrian which was crushed beneath God's power. The ransom shall return. And they did. 200,000 of them came back from the clutches of death. As the prisoners were released, 200,000, we know that from Sennacherib's own writing himself, the redeemed shall return. They shall come to Zion with singing. And in Isaiah 38 verse 20, when Hezekiah was healed, he says, we shall sing my songs in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And the anguish and the bitterness which Hezekiah experienced was removed. Now when we come to Isaiah 40, we have the continuation of the theme. And if Isaiah 35 and the words were similar to the events of Hezekiah's experience, just look at the language of Isaiah 40. Comfort ye. Comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye to the heart 
That's the identical expression that Hezekiah used in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 6. As he spoke to the heart of Jerusalem and cried unto her that her warfare is accomplished, the Assyrian is gone, and her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. The Assyrian is destroyed. Your sins are forgiven you. I'm speaking to your heart. No more shall you undergo that kind of evil. And then Isaiah 40 begins to talk once more about the way and the glory of God. And Isaiah 35, which was preparing the way, Isaiah 40 now sees the king coming. There's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh. And there's feverish activity. The mountains are leveled. The valleys are lifted up and the straight way is made. And here comes the king in his glory. Here he comes. The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, says Isaiah. Here he comes. And as he's coming down that highway, a voice in verse 6 said, What shall I say? That is the echo of Hezekiah's words in Isaiah 38, verse 15. You know, can you see the drama of that? Here comes the glory of Yahweh, the powerful, exceeding excellency of our God. The whole land has been flattened. The highway has been raised. Here he comes. And a voice says, well, what shall I cry? What is this glory? What is this excellency? What is this power? All flesh is grass and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. That's the glory of Yahweh. Can you see the way the prophet builds it up? We expect a king, a monarch, a power and instead there is a principle, the word of God, all flesh is grass. What shall I say, said Hezekiah? God hath spoken to me. And he hath done it. And that's the reason Hezekiah had to die. That the righteousness of the Father may be upheld in a sinless man. That in his flesh dwelt no good thing. That this man was saying, I agree with that principle, all flesh is grass. But the word of God stands forever. And that is the excellency of our God, the glory of Yahweh. Can you see that? It's a glorious theme, isn't it? And Isaiah 36 to 39 was sandwiched in between there to express the same principle that God's glory is not seen in the destruction of the Assyrian but in the death and the crucifixion of a righteous man. That is absolutely superb the declaration of God's righteousness in Zion. That's why he had to die. In the full flush of victory, God required something else, the crucifixion of flesh. And verse 9 describes the message being taken by the messengers as they race up to the hillside of Zion. Behold, your God's coming. In verse 10, here he is. Behold, the Lord Yahweh will come with a strong hand 
And look at the expression of verse 10. And his arm shall rule for him. Remember what we said last night? As Hezekiah stood upon the wall speaking to the heart of Jerusalem, with him is an arm of flesh. All flesh is grass, but God's arm is now coming. And Hezekiah, brethren and sisters, was the arm of Yahweh revealed. It was a battle between two arms, two powers. And that's the principle of the atonement the arm of Yahweh. Because this man submitted to the will of God, God healed him and the nation. And how many understood that? How many understood that? How many looked at that man in all of his death and agony and his sorrow and suffering? How many understood that? Well, look what Isaiah 53 says. And Isaiah 53 has its basis in Hezekiah, as Brother Carter observed in the Unity booklet. How many understood that principle that all flesh is grass as they were flushed with the victory? In Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Who hath believed the hearing of us and to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed how many understood that it would have only been a very small remnant and for those who believed brethren and sisters there was forgiveness thy warfare is accomplished Thine iniquities are pardoned. Who has believed? And for those who understood the principles of the atonement, that God's righteousness was upheld in the death of this righteous man, that all flesh was grass, that his nature was rightly related to death, and that was the grounds by which God could exercise his forbearance, for those who believed that, they were justified by faith. Never before had this drama been unfolded in a man. That's why he had to die. He was despised in verse 3 and rejected of men. As they looked upon him, bearing the scars of his infancy when he was offered to Molech, combined with the ulcerations of leprosy, despised and rejected. We esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The agony of seeing his people destroyed by the Assyrian because of their transgressions. He bore those griefs. And then when he was afflicted with the most humiliating disease, he also bore the griefs of mankind to the fullest as well. He was oppressed in verse 7 and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. You search the record for a prayer in which Hezekiah asked, like Job, to be released because of his own righteousness, there was none. He opened not his mouth. And we'll see his brief prayer in a moment. He was, in every sense of the word, a type of Christ. 
And although Christ only could have fulfilled this in its depth and feeling and reality, nevertheless there was a very great deal of application to the man Hezekiah. How many people in Scripture have had to go through that for the salvation of others? And the lesson we need to learn, young people, as we see this king bowed in suffering and grief, is that all flesh is grass. In the prowess of youth, when young ladies are turning into older ladies, when men are turning into young men, when there's a prowess of youth and everything's before us, the world's great, we have strength and virility, all flesh is grass, young people. All flesh is grass, including your own. It doesn't matter what prowess or intelligence or education we may have. As far as God is concerned, the excellency of our God requires the crucifixion of self. And without that principle, there will be no redemption. I don't think we really understand in our youth the meaning of the crucifixion of the flesh with its affections and its lusts. The mortification of the deeds of the body. We don't fully understand those things because life's so exciting. Applying for jobs, busy getting an education. The world's before us. But we've got to understand that the declaration of God's righteousness is the supreme point in the matter of our redemption. And when we can understand that for all our intelligence we are nothing before God, then that is in some faint measure an expression of the glory of Yahweh. We need to understand that. And a man had to suffer for that. And the Lord himself had to die literally for that. We need to appreciate the calling to which we are called. We are unique among the religions of the world because we understand the atonement. All other religions embolden the flesh, glorify it. But the truth requires its suppression, its crucifixion, its death and agony. We need to understand that the joys and pleasures of this life need to be cut off. That's why we have standards. That's why you'll hear addresses about not going to this place and not going to that place and not doing this and that. It's not that we enjoyed saying that to you, young people. It's because those activities inflame the lusts. Pride of life, particularly, is appealed to time and again in this age. We are bombarded on every side by a society that says, you are good, you can achieve, you are an individual, you are something special. We are bombarded by a society that appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. If it looks good, feels good, tastes good, get it. We live in a society that is bent upon enmeshing us within its grasp. And the word says that we must crucify the flesh. There is the battle. And it's one in the mind first, young people. The mind is insensibly affected by the stream of thought that passes through it, said Brother Carter, and that is so true. You feed it rubbish and it'll end up rubbish. 
But if you discipline it to receive the wholesome truth of God, it will stand some chance of being able to reflect the qualities that God requires. Can we understand those lessons? All flesh is grass. And the word of God is the only thing that is supreme. With all that background, let's come back to Isaiah 38. Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. What crushing words. He had no house to set in order. There was no heir to the throne. Thou shalt surely die. And Hezekiah in verse 2 turned his face to the wall and prayed unto Yahweh. He didn't turn his face to the window. He didn't turn his face to the door where there were exits and way outs. It was to a wall. We use the expression today, a blank wall. There was no way out, humanly speaking. But in Isaiah 25 and 26, the walls of the city were a symbol of God's salvation. Remember now, he said in verse 3, Remember now, O Yahweh, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. There was no confrontation with God there was no arguing. There was no defence of his own righteousness. There was simply an appeal. Remember me. I wonder, young people, how many of us could say a similar thing. It's not a prayer questioning God's decision like Job. He opened not his mouth. But it was like a lamb to the slaughter. He accepted the decision. But it was just simply an appeal. Remember me for good. How I've walked before thee with a perfect heart and in truth. How many of us could say that? How many of us now could offer a prayer to God and say, Remember me for I've walked in truth with a perfect heart. I think there will be very few indeed. A perfect heart. The Hebrew word means undivided. With single-minded determination, he had walked before his God. Remember me, I beseech thee. And he wept bitterly, or as the margin says, with a great weeping. You know, you'll end up picture that scene of this king covered with ulcers, consumed and withered by leprosy turning his face to the wall and this brief prayer, remember me, I beseech thee, burst again into tears with a great weeping. There was no suffering like unto his suffering. We only have to enter into the emotions of the man to understand the bitterness and tragedy of that time. He wept sore. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. There was no son to follow him. There was no one to guide the nation. Who was going to rebuild this society after the Assyrian had smashed it? And he wept bitterly. 
And God was listening to that. Then came the word of Yahweh to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith Yahweh, the Elohim of David thy father, I've heard thy prayer, I've seen thy tears. It's not that just crying brought God's attention, but the sincerity of grief was what attracted God's attention to that. I will add unto thy days 15 years. The tears. In Isaiah 25 and verse 8, the prophet Isaiah had said, there will come a day when I will wipe the tears off every face. And God did that. Fifteen years. He'd already reigned for about 14 or 15 years. It was an extension of life, double. And if five is the number of grace, then fifteen is threefold grace. Abundant mercy. He was to be healed, says the second Kings, on the third day. He was a type of Messiah who was to be raised from the dead. And on the basis of the resurrection, both he and the city would be delivered, as we saw. At this moment in time, the record in Isaiah is an abbreviation of the king's record. When we examine the king's record, we find there's a different order presented. You see, Hezekiah listened to that. And he asked God for a sign. And Isaiah responded by saying that you can have a choice of two signs. The shadow can go down, forward or backwards. Take your pick. And Hezekiah chose the more difficult of the two. And Isaiah prayed to Yahweh and the sign was granted. But as far as Isaiah is concerned, all that is omitted it is simply the sign itself that is emphasized. Verse 7. This shall be a sign unto thee from Yahweh, that Yahweh will do this thing that he hath spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees, which is gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees, by which degrees it was gone down. What is the significance of the sign? The first thing we note is it was suggested by Isaiah. And therefore, in the prophecy of Isaiah, we can see the symbols explained. The shadow of the degrees. The shadow. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, Isaiah spoke about those dwelling in the land of the shadow of death. Our life is but a shadow. The word degrees there in verse 8 is the Hebrew word ma'alot. It simply means a journey to a higher place, says Strong's, by implication steps. In fact, the word sundial there, you can see in the margin, the word dial there is the same word degrees. The implement by which the degrees was measured was one of Ahaz's implements. Why is Ahaz reintroduced in the context of a sign from heaven? Well, we saw last night, didn't we, that in Isaiah chapter 7, the faithlessness of Ahaz was revealed for all. Ask a sign in heaven above or on earth beneath. 
And Ahaz says, I will not ask a sign. And therefore God gave him a sign. Now in the context of all of that, Hezekiah both asks and receives a sign because he's an altogether different man. An altogether different man than his faithless father. This particular sundial was a series of steps. And the gnomon or the peg on top of the sundial was the instrument by which the shadow was cast down the steps. It's probable that each step represented one hour in time. As the sun cast its shadow, it was a symbol of the shadow of death extending itself over humanity, the land of the shadow of death. And for God to bring the shadow back ten steps, ten hours, nearly a whole day, it was a symbol of new life. Where in the record of truth was there a sign given to man in which the sun went not down for about a whole day? We know full well it was the time when Joshua defeated the enemy at Gibeon and the record says that there was no day like unto that in which Yahweh fought for man. It was Yahweh's victory. And you read the record carefully in Joshua and you'll find that every single city and every single enemy that Joshua came in contact with, he destroyed all flesh. All flesh was grass. As the sword of God made very quick work of those who were the enemies of God. We don't know exactly the mechanics of the miracle. But once more, God intervened in the heavens above that he might work a work of salvation. Hezekiah had three days to contemplate the tragedy of the circumstances. Three days in which to review all of this tragedy and yet to understand the will of God and to try and plumb the depths of all that was happening to him. And in verse 9... He wrote a psalm, the writing of Hezekiah. And every time that word is used, it's an official proclamation. This was a public psalm. The writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, which he had, sorry, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. When he had been sick, the Hebrew word means to polish or to rub down. When he was recovered, the word means to live again. When he had recovered from his sickness. And the word sickness there is translated grief in Isaiah 53 and verse 3. What would you write about if someone had given you three days to live? In that very day, his life was required of him. What would you write? Do you know what his first thought was? In verse 11 I said, I shall not see Yah, even Yahweh, in the land of the living. His very first thought. 
it grieved him. It grieved him greatly not to be able to have that close fellowship with his God. I wonder, young people, what our first thought would be if someone said you've got one day to live. What would be our immediate response to that? Well, Hezekiah's was this, that I'm going to miss my God in the land of the living. What a tremendous thought. No wonder he said that I've walked before thee in singleness of heart. No wonder he said, remember me, because God had always been part of his life. How many of us can say that, young people? And when we miss a meeting, I wonder how many of us grieve that we've missed the closeness of fellowship with our God. How many of us are like that? Or rather, it's just another class, just another memorial meeting, no real great tragedy. This man was crushed because he lost the facility to be able to closely worship his God. That's the caliber of the king, young people. He said in verse 12, Mine age is departed and is removed from me. He likens his life to a shepherd's tent. I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness. The word pining sickness, you see the margin? From the thrum. That's an old English word, the thrum. It was the very small fibers that held the woven garment to the frame as the weaver wove very skillfully the pattern. And those small fibers that held the garment to the frame was the thrum. And Hezekiah said, God just cut the thrum. That's how tenuous life is. It's like a shepherd's tent. And the shepherd in those days who wandered over all hills had on his back the smallest, compactest, most portable covering you could find. It was simply just a sheet. He found some sticks on the ground, made a very small booth and placed the sheet over it. That's the shepherd's tent. And Hezekiah said that my life, when God has removed it, is just like rolling up the shepherd's tent and putting it away. That's how tenuous life really is. And often we don't remember that until suddenly some of our young people have a car accident. Or we ourselves narrowly miss some tragedy. And then we understand how tenuous life really is. And then we understand how well we are prepared to meet death and to meet our Lord. It's like a shepherd's tent. Think you're doing well in life? It's like the thrum attaching itself to the frame of life. Very tenuous. Easily cut. And that's how Hezekiah saw himself before his God. In verse 13, he said, I reckon till morning that as a lion so will he break all my bones. The Hebrew is more, better translated this way. I composed myself until morning. But like a lion did he crush all my bones. And that was a very true statement. 
he was expecting to be healed. Hadn't God destroyed the Assyrian? Wasn't he in control? Wasn't it natural, therefore, that the sickness should be healed? I compose myself. And then in the morning, like a lion, the decision from Isaiah came, thou shalt surely die. It's like crushing his bones. Ever been in a situation like that when the heart misses a few beats? It's like being crushed and savaged by a, by a lion, said Hezekiah. A crushing feeling. So we're squeezed with fear and foreboding. That's how he felt. Expecting deliverance, he found none initially. In verse 14, he likens himself to cranes and swallows and doves, birds that have a very, very pronounced cooing noise. The sobbing and the weeping, the bursting into the anguish, it was like a dove cooing and mourning upon the trees. The crane and the swallow, their continual chattering, plaintive cry. What shall I say in verse 15? What shall I cry? And God gave him the answer, all flesh is grass. And he resolved at the end of verse 15 to go softly all my years, not in the bitterness of my soul, but as the Hebrew is, because of the bitterness of my soul. Now that's so very true, isn't it? The psychological scars of a traumatic experience linger in our life. You speak to a brother who has gone through a life-threatening disease like cancer and by the mercy of God has been healed. And you speak to that brother or that sister and you note the seriousness of their attitude towards God. When you go through a narrow escape, it humbles us and chills us. There's a seriousness about life, isn't there? Because of the bitterness of my soul, I will go softly or humbly all the days of my life. It does have an effect on people. In the time of youth, we don't think about that. So much to do and see we don't think about those kind of issues. But life is very serious. As Moses stood many, many years ago to talk about the Abrahamic covenant, he said, this is your life. What are you going to choose, he said, life or death? He understood the issues. Life is serious, young people. You are threatened with a disease called sin and death. And inevitably, eventually... One day, if our Lord tarries, you're going to die. We need to understand the dangers, the precarious position which we are in. Because our life is exceedingly slim. We don't think about that. We race through life without a care in the world at times until tragedy strikes and we suddenly realize that 
we cannot boast of tomorrow, for we know not what the morrow will hold. There are decisions that need to be made, young people. There are some here who are thinking about baptism. They need to progress upon that course of action. There are those yet who aren't even interested in baptism. Think very carefully what you're doing, young people. Think very carefully. And there are those of us who have been baptised. Can we, with Hezekiah, say, remember us for good? Because of the singleness, the singleness of heart that Hezekiah had. Do we have that, brethren and sisters? Those are the lessons of this man's life. In the anguish of my soul, I will go softly all the days of my life. There was, from that time onwards, a resolution in the man to use those 15 years ever so wisely. If you knew that you only had a few years to live, wouldn't you do everything you could to glorify God? Of course you would. 15 years isn't a long time. This man gave himself over to the study of the word, to the building of the people, and to the writing of the Psalms. We will sing my songs, he said upon the stringed instruments all the days of my life. And the songs of the degrees, as we're well aware, are in fact the product of one of those years of service. There are 15 psalms in all. A psalm for a year is life. There were 10 that were composed by himself and five from other people. They were the songs of the degrees, the steps of that sundial. And they express a confidence in God that only the tragedy of this death could really, really produce. How did God heal him? Through some miraculous bolt of lightning? Through some decision by the prophet? It was in verse 21. A lump of figs, which was laid for a plaster upon the boil, a lump of figs. The Hebrew word means a cake of figs. And more particularly, it was the dry figs. Figs were dried. They were made in little cakes because they were portable. They were high-energy food. You could take them anywhere you like. And these, of all things that God could choose, cake of figs. And he made a plaster. The Hebrew word means to rub out. It was a poultice. The cake was softened and moulded by the water and it was placed along the ulcerous body. And God gave him life. Why figs? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 8, which I'd like you to turn to, figs represent many things in the record, but I think this is probably the most apt symbol of the cake of figs. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, where God says, I will surely consume them, saith Yahweh. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade. And the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. 
And there the vine and the figs are symbols of what God has given them. And the Hebrew word means freely given. When Isaiah placed figs upon the ulcer, it was a symbol of something God had freely given. By grace are ye saved, and not of yourselves, said the Apostle Paul. But God didn't leave the circumstances there. Back in Isaiah 39, we read these classic words. If ever there was a contrast in the life of Hezekiah, here it is. Isaiah 39 and verse 1. At that time. It's almost the same expression as chapter 38 verse 1. In those days. There was a specific time appointed for another trial. And this time it's altogether different. Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters. Where have we read that letters were presented to Hezekiah? We read of that in chapter 37 and verse 14. But the enemy then was ever so clear. The enemy then was the serpent rap shaker. You could see the man. This time, letters come from another source, but it's far more subtle. Merodach Baladan. His name, Merodach, means servant of Marduk, the Babylonian god. Baladan means Baal is his lord. Here is the man with a name ringing with idolatry. And Hezekiah should have been on his guard. He brought letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointments and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed him not. He was glad of them. Or as Rotherham says, he rejoiced over them. In our language, he was flattered by them. He was flattered. They made a fuss over him. A man who was despised and rejected of men is suddenly the center of attention. That's the trial. A man who's an outcast is now suddenly very popular. And he was flattered by them. Flattery boosts the ego, lifts the heart. And you notice in verse 2 that when he showed this king everything, it was his precious thing. His armor, his treasures, his house, his dominion. And he'd gone too far. Who had given him the wealth? Who had given him the dominion? Who had given him all of these things? It was God. And in all that verse, it was his, 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 his. And we can see him roaming the countryside. 
This is where this king was defeated. This is what happened over here. This city over here. This treasure here. This house here. All through the land. All through his dominion. And the more he showed them, the more his ego was inflated. I'd like you to come to 2 Chronicles 32. Chronicles gives us very succinctly the root of the problem. Verse 25, 2 Chronicles 32. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. For his heart was lifted up, therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. He rendered not again according to the benefit done. In fact, God deliberately let the issue decide itself. In verse 31... Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. A king who had said, Remember me, for in singleness of heart I've worshipped thee. A man who had now said, that I will go softly all the days of my life because of the bitterness of my soul. Those resolves were now to be tested. And God does that. We make resolves. We make resolutions. And God tests those resolutions ever so thoroughly. And God left him. In the sense that there was no prophetic voice. There was no obvious providential guidance. God left him to see what he would do. And you know, brethren, citizens, and young people, that is exactly what God does today. Sometimes we wonder whether God is in our life and God is just standing back to see how we're going to respond. To know all that was in his heart. Doesn't God know what's in people's hearts? Of course he does. But it's an expression that God will see the outworking of all that's in his heart. He gives us the opportunity of showing by what we do what's in our heart. And God tests those resolves. Sunday by Sunday, we resolve to dedicate our lives. And Monday morning, inevitably, we're faced with some problem. As the resolution that we made is tested once more. In the wilderness wanderings, Israel went through trial after trial after trial, which was repetitious, either involving lack of water or lack of bread. And God was simply repeating the trial, repeating it, repeating it, trying to tell them the lesson to know what was in their hearts. Ever been through those circumstances? 
where we face the same issue and the same issue and the same issue that God may know what is in our heart. He rendered not, said verse 25, according to the benefit done to him. There is nothing more evil than ungratefulness. We teach our children ad nauseum, don't forget to say thank you. And God also is appreciative of the praises of his people. And the unthankful habits that we fall into are carried across into our way of worship. And we blunder through life receiving all the benefits that God gives us and only every now and then do we even remember to say thanks to God. It's all through the Psalms. And yet we neglect it frequently. He rendered not again according to the benefit done. These are great lessons, young people, for us to learn. Wrath and anger was upon him. But, in verse 26, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of Yahweh came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Do you know what precipitated that humility? In Jeremiah 26, we have the record of Jeremiah which tells us exactly what happened on that occasion. Jeremiah 26. Verse 18. Where the elders are protesting to the king. Verse 17 for context. Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah the Morishathite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of armies, Zion shall be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house is the high place of a forest. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him all to death? Did he not fear Yahweh and besought Yahweh and Yahweh repented him of the evil which he pronounced against them? Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. When a prophet approached a king and publicly rebuked the monarch of the land, there were very few kings who could take that. Very few indeed. In fact, in the record of Chronicles and Kings, we have the most righteous kings who in that test failed abysmally. They could not accept rebuke from their brethren. What a lesson that is. When someone has to say something to us, which is disagreeable to us, but it's true. But this king was different. He humbled himself. Micah the Morishathite the country prophet, not Isaiah, the humble country prophet, speaking before the monarch of the land with a clear message, unless you repent, God will plough Zion like a field. The very victory you have secured 
the very salvation of the city that you have procured through your greatness will now be undone by your pride. See how God works? And Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. What a great man. What a great man. Wouldn't it be nice to see young people respond like that when the committee has to go to them and say, listen, you shouldn't be doing that. Wouldn't it be great to see young people like that? Yes, I'm terribly sorry. You're right. I won't do it again. And what do we get? Self-justification. Complaining. Who do you think you are to tell me what to do? Ever heard all those kind of responses? And he humbled himself from the pride of his heart. That's the response we need. When people rebuke us, mildly or unmildly, it's the strength of a great person to receive that rebuke. A great person. He humbled himself. Back in Isaiah 39, Isaiah picks up the concluding thoughts of that rebuke. God changed his mind. And instead of bringing the judgments of the nation in that time, he deferred them to future generations. And all of the treasures that Hezekiah had shown to the Babylonian king would end up in Babylon. And that's why the prophecies of Isaiah from chapter 40 through to 66 talk about the Babylonian captivity and the release through Cyrus. Then said Hezekiah in verse 8 of Isaiah 39, Good is the word of Yahweh, which thou hast spoken. He said, moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. And we read those words and we think, well, that seems ungrateful, doesn't it? Here's a man who's almost seeming to say, well, look, I'm very pleased that the judgment won't come in my days. But he didn't say that at all. Good is the word of Yahweh which thou hast spoken. And the idea behind that phrase is this. That Yahweh's word in sparing us and our children is good and merciful. That's the idea. That Yahweh's word in sparing us is full of goodness and mercy. That was his response. He was now thankful for the benefit that was rendered to him. There shall be peace and truth in my days. And that was no selfish statement. That was the resolution. I've got 15 years of peace and security. I've got 15 years to rebuild this nation. I've got 15 years to get my mind back in the word. I've got 15 years to read at the Psalms, to build the nation up. That's how he saw life. There's an energy and vitality there. Peace and truth in my days, not to sit back and do nothing, but to build others for the kingdom. When we come to the Chronicles record and the King's record, God leaves an epitaph upon his life. I'd like you to come back to 2 Chronicles 32. It's recorded by the Jewish tradition and by Josephus that Hezekiah threw himself into the work of God to the extent that he 
edited and under the direction of the Spirit, brought a lot of the Scripture together for our benefit. He was intensely involved in the work of the truth. In 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 32, we have this epitaph upon his tomb, as it were. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and of his, as the margin says, his kindnesses, his keset. Behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Of all of the events that Ezra could have recorded, it was his kindnesses. Wouldn't it be nice to be remembered by the brotherhood like that? Kindnesses. A person who you could go to and receive the straightness of the word in the meekness of wisdom, the kindnesses. Wouldn't it be nice to have an epitaph like that? That whatever people remembered of you, it was because you showed kindness to others in the bonds of the truth. But when we come to the king's record, we have his most telling epitaph. 2 Kings chapter 20. Second Kings 20 and verse 20. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now that's an amazing verse, brethren and sisters. Amazing verse. He saved others. He built their trust in God. He sacrificed his life for the nation. He submitted himself to the most humiliating of deaths. He kept the Passover. He reformed the nation. He opened the doors of the temple. And the thing that the king's record remembers is that he brought water into the city. What is the record telling us? Is it interested in the conduit he made? The engineering miracle through the rock? Of course not. He brought the water of life from the virgin's fount and he gave strength for the remnant that was called to come to the birth. It was his life that was given to strengthen others and to bring the water of the word into the city that people may live. That was how the record of the kings remembers him. You could go to this man and you could receive the waters of life. You could go to this man and you could receive strength and faith. That's how the record remembers him in Kings. Remarkable, isn't it? You know, we've traversed the scripture very briefly about this king. He's a remarkable man. We've thrilled with the greatness of his example, his singleness, his sincerity, his ability to be able to speak to people's hearts. His ability to be able to take an ecclesia that was smashed to pieces with rioting and drunkenness and to bring them together and to lean upon his words. We've seen the greatness of the man who was despised and rejected and yet for all of that his suffering was for others. 
He's an example that we all need to grasp hold of. But I want to leave in conclusion the words of Psalm 102 in your minds. You see, he wrote the 102nd Psalm. A psalm which is a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and poureth out his complaint before Yahweh. And all through the psalm there is allusion after allusion after allusion to the words of Isaiah and Chronicles. As he said in verse 24, I said, O my ale, take me not away in the midst of my days. A man whose life was suddenly shortened and curtailed, and the voice of the Spirit came back, thy years are throughout all generations. And the man says, of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the work of thy hands, and the Spirit comes back in verse 26, they shall perish, but thou shalt endure. He will be raised from the dead. And although this psalm has a messianic context, there is a lesson there for Hezekiah. Thou shalt endure. His qualities and his character, his greatness and his singleness of faith are the lessons for life. And what about us? As we go back home from these studies, what about us? Well, the psalm says in verse 16, When Yahweh shall build up Zion, he shall appear in glory. He's doing that now. He is building up Zion and establishing the basis for his kingdom. He will regard in verse 17 the prayer of the destitute and he will not despise their prayer. Are you having difficulties in life? Do you feel at times like Hezekiah that everyone's against you? The people have robbed you of your own prestige? Just standing before people is gone? Are you having difficulties and troubles in life? they too heavy to bear. He will regard the prayer of the destitute. He did so with Hezekiah and he will do the same with us. This shall be written in verse 18 for the generation to come. And we are the generation who are benefiting from this study. The people which shall be created shall praise Yahweh. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did Yahweh behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of Yahweh in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. He heard the prayer of a righteous man, even though he dwelt in the highest heaven. And we have this guarantee from the 102nd Psalm on the basis of Hezekiah's life that he will listen to our prayers too. If we take nothing away from these studies, may we take that, that God hears our prayers. One of the greatest benefits which we never can really fully understand. Brethren and sisters, we come to the end of a great life. He will endure forever. Let's take those characteristics Let's reach forth and save others. Let's trust in God and do good. Let's commit our way to God and trust in Him. Let's seek the responses of the heart that they may praise God continually. That when He comes in glory, brethren and sisters, 
we may be with him in eternity with those glorious and wonderful qualities of faith and trust.